Welcome to the CETO pod. This From the Archives episode is the second part of the keynote from Triangular Conference 2008. The keynote was styled as a conversation in two parts between Professor Dermot Moran from University College Dublin School of Philosophy and Professor Lucas Introna from Lancaster University. In part two, Lucas argues that phenomenology offers deep insights into fundamental aspects of the human experience of technology and information systems, with implications for the sociology of management and organisation. So, uh, my task is now to boil it down to something very concrete. So, uh, I'm going to say a few words about why I am a phenomenologist. and, and to talk a bit about how I use it and my work with regard to it. Um, this notion of describing the lived experience, or, yeah, the description of the lived experience, when I first read Rousseau, I wasn't very comfortable with because uh, at that time I read Rousseau a bit from a subjectivistic sort of perspective. And this idea of everything is consciousness and stuff like this. So very comfortable with that. Uh, and then I read Heidegger, and actually I, I found a very useful way of, of capturing this idea that we experience the world as something, which I call the as structure. Okay. You know, if we want to try and understand how to use phenomenology as a way to help us account for, for experiences. The as structure is a very useful way. So the question then becomes, uh, why is it that we experience that object as a bottle? Because we don't, clearly we don't approach us, as uh, Dermot has uh, described very eloquently, we don't, dis- we don't approach that as a plastic thing. We don't ex- approach it, approach it approach it as a service. We approach it as a bottle, or as a weapon, or as a weight. So the question then becomes, why is it that we approach it as X? Uh, and, And the answer to that is the Break, and coming back to why I'm a phenomenologist, one of the problems with, as you know, the, the information systems field has been this sort of this sort of divide between the positivistic type traditions and the, and the subjectivistic type traditions. traditions. So the so the what the what the positivist traditions do is they reduce the as question simply what is physically present. So why do we approach it as a bottle? Because it is something that has the potential to hold water and and so forth. So the the question for them, the solving or the the answer to the as question, is to investigate the physical properties. Or, you know, to, in the way way that positive research does, it sort of constructs quantitative measures to make present, to make, to make uh, accessible the object or the phenomena through the measurements. Right? So the presence, the 
present, the being present of the object to the measurements. But what phenomenology wants is to say that the bottle appears as a bottle, not simply because of what is present, but what is presumed, assumed, as uh, Bernard described, the necessary conditions, right? the necessary conditions for it even to appear as a bottle. The necessary conditions for it to appear as a bottle is not just its physical properties, but it is social practices. It's the idea of drinking from containers called bottles. So if I don't understand social practices of drinking, then I wouldn't approach that object as a bottle. Right? So, so the necessary conditions that makes it appear as a bottle is as important as the physical attributes. So I can put it in another language, which maybe some people will understand, sort of at the network matter language. Clearly, this bottle has certain affordances. Right? It allows for containing of water. It allows for uh, being uh, stable. Just so it has a surface that allows it for it to stand upright and so forth. So there are certain affordances. But those affordances is just one part of the picture, what it allows for. So it allows us to see it as a range of things. We can see it as a container for drinking, as a way to keep down paper, as an object to hit somebody for. So it allows for certain things. But what makes it, what makes it such that I approach it as a bottle to drink from? Now, that account has to do with, am I thirsty? What are the practices? What would be appropriate? It wouldn't be appropriate, generally, for me to take it as a weapon. More often, and normally, I would take it as a container containing water. So I have to give an account of, uh, in active network language, not just the, the physical properties, but I need to give account of the social practices, in Heidegger's terms, I would say, you need to give, give account of the referential whole. All the things that refers to and is required to refer to in order for us to take it as a bottle for drinking. Now, in a different way, we could say, why do I ask the question, is it a bottle? Or is it a weapon? Or is it so the uh, uh, phenomenological question to that would be, why do we ask questions about bottles? Why do we pose the bottle as a problem? And then I would have to say, so why do I structure it as a problem of a bottle? What are the necessary conditions for me to raise the question? Why is it a bottle? So, so we could ask the phenomenological question both in terms of how do we approach the object, but also why we, as researchers, ask even the question, is it a bottle or not a bottle? Why did that question come up as a relevant question? Right? Uh, and then we have to give an account of the referential whole, the necessary conditions. And those necessary conditions are both social, physical, practical, you know, in all of these layers, levels, as, uh, as Dermot said so well, you know, we have all these levels of description. 
And the referential hole that is the answer to this question, why does it emerge as a pothole, has all of these layers, and we have to keep all of them. And if we reduce to any of them, if we reduce it simply to the subjective intentions of the subject, we are, uh, we are doing what the soul wants to warn us against, psychologicalism. Reduce things to people, what is in people's heads, their psyche. Or if we reduce it simply to the material features of this, we are, we are, we are doing a reduction of, of naturalism. So what is present as physical features, is, it's all that's relevant. So neither we want to reduce it to the subject, what is in the mind and consciousness of the subject, nor we want to reduce it to the physical attributes, features of the object. What we're saying is, when we approach something, as in the ongoing experience of everyday life, we approach it as something. Right? We don't, I mean, I don't approach this thing there as material properties, surfaces, uh, and then work out what may these properties add up to. Right? I don't do that. I approach it as a body, or as a weapon, uh, of course. As, the question is as, what is it that I'm approaching it as? Right? I'm not saying it's always an bottle, and it's always a weapon, or it's always a paper weapon. Its physical properties allows for a range of ways in which it might be revealed to me. So the affordances are not fixed. But why do I approach this bottle? Because I'm thirsty. But, but drinking from it is a practice that we are familiar with. So we understand drinking from bottles as a practice. So that practice and understanding of the practice is part of an account of why I approach it as a bottle. So, so, one, if I could summarize uh, Demet's presentation and the way I've used it, is using the as question as a means right, to fuse together and hold together the subject of the object, the material, the social, the psychological, and saying that when we experience the world, we experience it as something. So then the question becomes, why do the user experience the system as a way to do something, as this? Why are the managers seeing this project as a project for modernization, as a project to make more? Why are they seeing it this way? Why are they seeing it as this? And if I can give an account of that, why are they seeing it as, then I'm starting to describe it in a phenomenological sense. What it's really saying is that, from in my mind, the horizon of significance that Dermot uh, referred to, uh, what phenomenology wants to do is to keep s- simultaneously what is present in the experience, the bottle and the practices, but also what is absent, namely that which makes it possible or requires for me to encounter it as an object, such as a bottle. And it's this play between what is present and what is absent, but is necessary in order for the present to be experienced as what what he described as the necessary conditions. What are the necessary conditions? And in my mind, uh, Latour is a phenomenologist because what Latour says is we need to keep it at the level of description, 
which is a phenomenological uh, imperative. But he's also saying, whatever is experienced as a particular actor is only experienced as a particular actor because there are certain necessary conditions, a network, a work that met, a, a network, right? an ongoing working that is necessary. A set of practices, a set of systems, a set of connections, a set of relationships that are necessary to maintain that actor as a bottle of wind. What is it that makes that bottle retain itself, stabilize itself, as a bottle for drinking? If I can describe that network, I have to describe practices, objects, intentions, I have to describe a whole lot of things. And if I can do that, I'm faithful to the actor, which is what he wants us to do. So I, I see phenomenology as a very powerful tool, mechanism, to keep us from reducing, right, re simply reducing something to either its physical uh, properties or to certain psychological conditions. Or even, in uh, IS literature, we've had this debate about relevance and rigor. Okay, so so the, 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 the idea of theory and practice. So something has to be relevant in, in, in embedded in practice, or rigorous embedded in theory. That sort of distinction, the split, seems to me to emerge because we either we are reducing either something to simply the practices, or we are reducing something to the ideas about the practices. And we don't have to do that. Because right? the question is not, is a theory a practice? The question is, what do people experience it as? What's the account for that? How do we account for that? And so if managers say uh, efficiency is important, if managers say technology is a, a vehicle for transformation of organizations, the question is, why? Why do they see technology as a vehicle for transformation? And if I can start to give an account of that, what I will give an account of will be very relevant, because it will relate to what they are doing. Uh, just a simple example, paper that I wrote with my colleague uh, Fernando. What we did is we looked at the screen. Right? The screen is a very commonly experienced object. And we asked ourselves, why is it that we approach this surface here as a screen? Right. Why don't we approach it simply as a surface? Uh, and we try to tease out what are the necessary conditions for an object to appear as a screen. And through that process, we've discovered some of the features that are important in terms of what we call the screening of the screen. That makes it maintain itself as a screen. And that was very helpful in terms of thinking through the way in which screens function in organizations. So I think that phenomenology is a very powerful tool that helps us to break some of these old nuts theory, practice, subject, object, uh, because it, it, stick, it stays to the question of description. But description within this play between what is present and what is absent. The experience as, uh, which is, I mean, sometimes even in thinking about my students' work, when they say, I'm going to do a study of uh, 
the way in which information technology, uh, handheld technology is used in sales. Uh, then I, I often ask them, why is it that this question appears relevant to you? That you would want to study handheld technology in the sales practice. So why did this appear as a problem or as something to be studied? And we, we start to unpack that the necessary conditions for why this appears as a problem, we start to understand the phenomenological import of what he or she is trying to do. So the as structure is what I want to give you as a, a tool or, or as a mechanism to use phenomenology both as a methodology but also as a way to understand objects and subjects and their relationship. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. I would like to. Yes, yes, yes. Let's open up a, a bit of a discussion. Uh, questions, uh, clarification, or challenges? Relevant? Yes. This idea of the notion of the important programs, this is a question, and I suppose that according to the context, context of the context, that we should probably the ways in which, for example, IS as a material object is seen by different social groups, by different. And so from, uh, but at the same time, the IS group tends to, to move into kind of uncover certain inner properties of IS or that substance. Uh, uh, for example, the idea to also idea of domains of paint or things like that. So I was wondering how the notion of uh, the importance of materiality in IS and phenomenology uh, can be brought together how one can form the other. Yes. Um, yes, of course, one of the, so one of the criticisms of, of phenomenology has been, so on the one hand, they say, well, it's just description. So it's just description. Uh, now, there's a certain school in phenomenology which highlighted, which also says, well, of course, if we do the analysis of the as structure, we start to understand the conditions that are necessary for something to take, be taken as a screen or, or a circle. And through that, we start to understand what screens mean, uh, what screens are in some way. Uh, and that gives us an understanding of screens irrespective of its individual instantiations. So whether a screen is something that's projected, whether a screen is an electronic LCD device, whether a screen is, is a, you know, something like this, doesn't really matter. So it's, it's material instantiations doesn't really matter if we understand what screens are in the way that they are constituted through these, these referential practices. Then as long as, these ref as long as people take something as a screen, we understand what is implicated in that taking something as a screen. And therefore, we understand something more than simply all the material or varied instantiations of it. And in that sense, uh, some people have, uh, as Leonard said, so, uh, there is a, a certain understanding of phenomenology as being essentialist in as much as it tries to understand what is described as the essences. Right? Uh, and so, from that, people could say, well, the essence of 
information technology is to informate, or the essence of technology is to communicate, or to coordinate, or to etc. etc. Now, I'm a bit, I'm not one of those that want to go too far, because of course, it's a necessary condition for something to mean something uh, in, a, in a fairly consistent way, otherwise, if I say screen, you have no idea. You'll have to say, do you mean this screen, that screen, that screen? What, what, are, you, what are you referring to? Clearly, so we do have notions of things that are sufficiently stable that if we talk about things. Now, the problem is, when we talk about things in that way, screen, that's a screen, that's a screen, we, we, what we foreground is the object. But what we, don't, uh, in, what we don't bring into account necessarily is the conditions that are necessary for us to take it as a screen. So one of the problems is, in a sensualist sort of way, is the, the necessary conditions and practices that constitute something as a screen is in a sense forgotten, in a sense not, not, not recalled. And so we, then are, we are then seduced into the idea that that something has an essential property in itself, that there's something in the screen, in the object, that it's its, it's, its screen, right? So, so it's that shift from what I would call a, um, a referential notion of essence, which is that something does have a stable understanding or a stable interpretation because it's embedded in a sense of practices which gives it that meaning. Versus something that the object has as such. Like, uh, it has, you know, a screen always is this. Right? And, and it's that shift. And that's where it's become dangerous, when you start to forget. So if you say about informating, informating as something, as an experience, has as necessary conditions a whole sort of sets of things. I mean, it has a certain cognitive ability, we imply. It has a certain... Uh, conduct or uh, comportment towards uh, numbers and uh, graphs and so forth. It assumes so many things. But when people say information technology informates, it somehow gives information technology the essential feature that it informates without uh, forgetting that that informating or experiencing that as informating as a set condition, a whole set of practices. You see what I mean? It's that shift that's dangerous. Uh, and, and of course, that's the problem with theory. So when we theorize, we take the, the, the understanding, the meanings of things as we've encountered them, conveniently forget the necessary conditions for those encounters to be that which they are, and then take the concept or idea and give it status outside of that that set of practices that gave it its meaning. Is, is that... Yeah, if I, yeah I, I fully agree with what you're saying. I'm just trying to figure out what you're saying. Are you saying that there's a certain view that takes that these, let's say, information passing system or whatever are just there? I mean, they're a bit like physics, you know, that the light waves or there, there are energy waves in this room right now, and they're just there, and we know how to put it up. Uh, there's a certain sense in which I know, so a lot of people working in uh, 
uh, information processing of all kinds. They just want to think of it as, as exchanging, receiving, or passing information in some sort of systematic way, governed by laws, but where the subject doesn't intervene. Right? I mean, this is a definition. Uh, I was just thinking, because you mentioned screen, I was thinking, you know, we think of a practice like going to the movies. Right? But when we go to the movies, you know, we get involved in the film, we watch it, and so on. So it's a practice. But you can imagine a movie skeptic, you know, someone who doesn't believe in movies. And they sit there and they say, you're just watching lights on a flat screen. Right? And those faces are not speaking. That the sound is coming from speakers behind you. And anyway, they're not three-dimensional, they're only two-dimensional. And you know, the head is 20 feet tall, a human's head You know, you know, you can imagine someone systematically disrupting your attempt to watch the movie by pointing out that you were fooling yourself the whole time. Um, well, you know, there's a because we have we bought and that's the case we consciously voluntarily enter into movie attitude, you know. We get into the story, we're involved, we're feeling the emotion. We, we, you know, they talk about it as a suspension of disbelief, if you like. But it is, we, we, we bracket out that side, the physical side, and we just get into the movie. Now, you know, someone who is studying film might want to study it the other way and say, oh, they're using a particular filter on the lens, and this opening shot is a long tracking shot that lasts for three and a half minutes. You know, you see movie people tiling the length of a single only and that's another way of parsing, if you like, uh, the structure of the experience. But there is such a thing as experiencing a movie, and that's and that's the aim of the law. It's not just putting, it's not just running information exchanges in a system that there are no humans in who are giving it meaning. If you take the humans out of it, you can have light reflecting off the you won't have a movie. And I think that's what's missing in a lot of the discussions that take place sometimes. Is it, Knowledge sometimes moves around by itself. But, but even in that example, I would say the the question is the as. So when I'm sitting in the movie, I'm looking at as a movie. Whereas if somebody's making a movie, he's looking at as a movie to be made, which is a different comportment, it's a different attitude, right? Whereas the guy studying this, the, the wavelengths is looking at it not as a movie, he's looking at it as a scientific problem of wavelengths. And when you're looking at it as scientific problems, of, now it's a good, good question. Why do, you know, why do scientists look at the world as physical properties? Why does it emerge that the world is a problem of physical properties? Right? So that's a different question. But it's always a comportment as. Right? It's as physical properties, it's as a director making a movie, it's as somebody enjoying a movie. Right? Even the critic looks at a movie differently. Right? So when you go and you're a critic and you look at the movie, you're not looking at a movie as a thing to be enjoyed. You look at it as an object to be criticized. And as an object to be criticized, it's something different. It's not a movie in the way that it's for the, for the person watching it as a movie. And so then the question becomes, what is necessary for a critic to look at as something to be criticized. So there's a tradition of criticism, there's you know, all sorts of things that's necessary for him or her to look at as something to be criticized. And that's an interesting study, right? So it's a different, different attitude, what you call an attitude, I like, or you know, it's a different attitude. It's a different way of encountering that object, right? 
And, and every encounter of that object as something has as its necessary condition all sets of practices, traditions, understandings, meanings, you know, physical uh, artifacts, etc. And so, so, so that's the question for me. Is, so when you say, what is a movie? I want to say, what are you experiencing it as? If you're a director, the movie is something different. If you're a viewer, it's something different. So that, this is the question, really. What is it as that you're experiencing? And, and that's what, I mean, this is what makes it an interesting question for, if you talk to technologists about IT, they're experiencing it as something to be designed. Their encounter with technology is something different. To the user, which experiences it as something to help them in their work or to hinder their work. <laughs> so this is an interesting question right, to ask. Them. So what is it? I mean, you wouldn't say, what is it that you're experiencing it as? Eh? It would be something that would Well, I think there's also this thing. I mean, why do we assume that not, it's not just that the physical as, the physicalist way of looking at it, or the scientist as, is one among many. It's also has privileged things. Ah, yes. That's the real problem. Yeah. Uh, that is the real one. The other one is just very, very dark. Unless you're a movie mogul in California when the film is the real thing. And, you know, or it's moving towards money making capacity, it's seeing it as a money making capacity or as a vehicle of entertainment or whatever. But uh, well, what is, there has been, one of the things that phenomenologists like Husserl and Heidegger and White Shrew have been pointing out is that we sort of seeded the ground as to say what's real to the scientists. And then we're always trying to get back. So I just put this little quote from Heidegger there for really influential <coughs> in the age of world fiction. They talk about world, which is in, in phenomenology doesn't just mean the physical world, does not mean the cosmos or nature, but history too, you know, even that doesn't exhaust. I mean all the the as structures we've been talking about don't exhaust. But the bigger puzzle is not just that they're all there's an infinite number of ways of looking at things. Somehow they're all integrated and that we experience it as a single world with these different perspectives. And that's what he talks there. This includes the world of ground. Whatever it is that makes it, that these all things belong to the same world. So, we're in a world which there's a physicalist account, economic account, aesthetic account, historical account. They're all these, just their And this is all, this is a battle in the universities. Trying to say, oh, our discipline really matters. It does describe certain practices in a significant way, in a way from which we can learn. But, you know, uh, that's always happened. Uh, speaking of the politics of CD Brown, on your first slide, you talk about avoiding theory construction and how you talk about the science of experience. And in some sense, maybe not seeking too much ground as well. Because the important here this is that the practices of, of describing are very similar, that's very difficult to, to draw from the And so there's a kind of re-evaluation of what we mean by the five practices and what we mean by what constitutes yeah. good theory. Because, um, you know, CPD, you guys have tried this, I think there's an excellent theory and it's puts a different kind of theory to, I assume, the kind of theory you were referring to in the first line, called predictive. So then the question becomes, what should we be looking for in good theory? And, 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 um, and 
Well, it's great. Uh, Thank you, Barry. Um, first of all, I agree with this idea that there is a, a, a practice of theorizing, but that theorizing is itself a practice, so this is a puzzle. Uh, uh, and there are good bad ways of doing it. It is also a culturally informed way. I mean, the practices that evolve and become professional, for example. Uh, theory, so it's a certain theoretical ways of doing things uh, at certain states of the zone. White coats. Putting on white coat. Like any other white coat gave this lecture. Uh, this coat. <laughs> uh, uh, and the, there is also a theory of kind of, of there's a, as you say, well, there's a theory of practice. So the two are intertwined. So uh, we have to acknowledge that, that uh, theory influences practice. Not so much, uh, perhaps in ways different than we think, and maybe that's one of the things we have to think about, is how is it that uh, theory has inserted itself into our practice? How is it that somebody will say, I, I'll give this example not too long ago, uh, in a psychology class, the people will say, oh, um, my blood sugars are low, you know, uh, I need a coffee or sugar they also have feeling tired. I mean, we replace the one experience with what we take to be the scientific description of it. Uh, but the scientific description is only relevant if we're feeling tired. Uh, so, the, so, which theory to introduce? There's a notion of, if you like, explanatory relevance. You know, and, and that's, that's, that's what drivers actually do. They're trying to say, look, you know, uh, you've got to look at the practice to see what's explanatory relevance. Uh, if you were building a machine to return serves at 120 miles an hour in a tennis game, you would need to look at things like uh, velocity and that and so on. But if you're training human beings, you don't do that. So you don't bring, or you know, you don't teach someone how to bring things. Riding a bicycle, you don't start with the laws of uh, thermal geodynamics. You, you start by practice. So uh, the relevance of the theory to the practice and the manner in which uh, there's a certain uh, meaning. This is what Husserl calls back to the things themselves, back to the much misunderstood term, back to the matters themselves. It's what's going on. That's what's relevant. And, and that's a term of what resources we bring to bear. And people seem to miss that. It's like, you know, we like walking into an argument, walking into a room with two people arguing and missing that fact, and sort of say, you know, saying something totally irrelevant. That you know, you can walk in, pick up, oh, you know, the atmosphere here is all wrong, and you know, observe it. Well, which one you bring to bear is dependent on your ability to observe the situation, to read the situation, and, and that I think is what uh, I know this sounds ridiculous, but this is what phenomenology is sort of emphasis on intuition. Again, much misunderstood. Is of, you know, we, you know, having the sense to bring the right perspective to bear. But there's no, there's no, uh, what you call it, you know, there's no formula for doing that. The sense of theory here is, is a different thing to you. You know, the sense of theory is describing the practice or uh, commenting on the practice, which makes aspects of the practice. Um, or, or presents the practice in a different way to those who are, who are 
development. So what we have we could not get you know, in terms of any insight into yes, why I might use something or why I do certain things in certain circumstances. And maybe that understanding is here we should be seated to easily. Uh, Absolutely. I mean that's I look, I think that's where I mean I think a good novel is a and this is something, again, in phenomenology, it's not just that, I think they acknowledge that you can get insight, essential insight into the situation from a single example. You don't have to read a hundred novels uh, to get the idea. You only need to read one. So it's different from, say, just serving. And often, uh, you know, <coughs> I know the uh, tabloid book have this, uh, you know, the University of you know, they're always quoting things that students or studies have come up with that are completely obvious. You know, people don't like it that. Yeah. And, and maybe the point is, is that I would hope we use the word description. That maybe it's the orientation of the research. It's not so much a descriptor as more of a detector. Maybe it's a description. And maybe that's, that's it. That, that we write a exercise description that is something that's yeah. straightforward, but reading is more detectable. It is detectable. It's certainly not to know what it was asked for. Someone say, you know, or taking your own game, you have to figure out what that person do for a minute. You know, just sort of look at their hands or their shoes or the kind of glasses they wear. That's detective work, but it's just, it is paying close attention to what's going on in the situation. And knowing and looking for and knowing what's relevant to your to your search, if you like. And, and that's what detective work is. But see, it's highly intuitive. And that's and that's one of the things that is worrying from the point of view of people who want there to be a algorithm, you know, uh, some kind of a, a rule that you can impose. Uh, you could have a set of instructions, you know what I mean? And that is what Drake's attempt is in his work with the with Therefore, they had the idea that to train anyone, they have to learn the set of instructions and then apply the instructions. And, and that really didn't get to where people wanted to be. Because you've got to look at it from the other side, what you were talking about, from practices. People are, you know, are, think of what people do in their ordinary lives, how they, uh, you know, how they pick out who they're going to marry or love or whatever. Uh, there isn't, you know, I know there are mechanisms for doing that. But they're not. They're, they're not. They're, it's highly intuitive. And yet, that they cover the most essential features of our life. So, why do we drop them in, in, in management? Why do we suddenly think it's all about uh, ticking boxes and, and, and doing all kinds of empirical you know, studies of the meaning of it? Because even, even those, I mean, Gregor's point was even those rules assume a certain lived experience to make sense of the rules. So there, there's a certain understanding of, of the world and a set of practices that are relevant to the world, which makes sense of that. I mean, the easy example is when you, when you, when you uh, have read a recipe, when you read a recipe, it assumes a certain understanding of measure, and understanding of, of containers, of mixing, of, you know, there's a whole set of things there that are, are, are not said, that's unstated. Uh, and, 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 you know, 
in an interesting way. That's that's what you know. What I think. Why the problem with the argument? It's only description. Is that somehow description is always on the same level, and it's not the case. Uh, when I describe the necessary conditions for me to encounter that bottle as a bottle, in accounting for that, I get an understanding of why people tend to pick this thing up and drink from it. Which, which is not a theory, in a, not a theory of drinking, but it is an account that explicates in a, in a very detailed and, 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 and I think in a very strong way why certain things happen the way they happen. I can give an account of why people walk into the room, turn this cap, and start drinking from it. I can give it that because I, I give an account of practices of drinking, bottles, containers, and how containers function in society. I've given uh, an account of, of the properties of bottles and to be able to hold water, and, and so forth. And through this, I've, I've got a very rich understanding of why people walk into a room. I mean, I, I, when I teach the students, I always ask them, uh, when we start with the phenomenology, I ask them, why do they walk into the room and sit down? And I walk into the room and I stand up front. There's nothing in the room as such that says we have to do that. There's nothing that defines in the room or anything that we can detect when we look at the setup that's going to define that it's be like that. But they walk in, they sit down, I walk in, I come to the front, I switch on the projector and so forth. Why? Well, partly because there is these things are organized in such a way that there are desks that look to the front, there are seats, there are many seats there, and there's just one seat here, and so forth. So part of it is that, but also there's this, I, I'm the teacher, they are the students. So there's an understanding of what it means to be a student. What are the practices that are relevant to being a student? What are practices that are relevant to being the teacher? And one of it is that they tend to sit down and I tend to stand up, and so forth. And by starting to understand and give an account of that, uh, also the way in which the room is organized, we can start to get an understanding of why it is that they tend to listen, I tend to speak, you know, and all of these things. We can give an account of those things in very interesting ways. And once we've done that, we can start to understand, uh, because the room is designed in this way, why is it designed in this way? It assumes a certain model of teaching, right? It's not so practical, right? Because there's no chair here for me to sit down. We're not facing each other. All of you are facing me, right? So there's a certain understanding of what it is that teaching is that is implicated in the design of the room. So once we understand, we give an account of this, we can start to think, well, maybe if we design the room differently, we can teach differently, right? Now that question of, if we design a room we can teach differently, wouldn't have come up if we hadn't thought about what it is that made me stand here, you sit down, why it is that the room is designed in the way that it is designed. So without having a theory of pedagogy, the theory of pedagogy, theory of teaching, without having a theory of teaching, you know, so I don't need a theory of teaching, but simply by analyzing the way in which we encounter each other in this space, we can start to imagine different ways of teaching. 
understanding different ways of teaching. So that's why I'm saying I think it sometimes uh, it's a sometimes very uh, it's it's some something easy to say it's just description. It's sort of as if description is not insightful, doesn't give you understanding, doesn't allow you to encounter and imagine different encounters. Because right? I, I mean the imagine is very important. Imaginative variation. Rousseau talks about you know how you can were just doing it. Imagining the, how the room might be otherwise. I mean and therefore how the teaching practice could be otherwise. Could be otherwise. But you don't have to do it. You know, you have to say that's basically the ball the I mean I was thinking about this because you know, uh, someone who designs a room doesn't move all the furniture. They think about how they might move They don't physically. They might have the end of the day. They wouldn't be extremely tired. Uh, yeah, we have computer models. Yeah, you, we have computer you, you models. can play around with that. Yeah. But yeah. you still, one will feel like the other won't feel like. Yeah. That's not all about the end, uh, which might be the driving what you were describing. The, 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 the use of every square centimeter of space to maximize, you know, whatever it is. Uh, that isn't, that's, you know, that's a kind of black line there model of how human beings sit. But human beings don't sit in the way that the line would like to sit. <laughs> Although the proper, you know, mode of there is, is, is interfering with what happens. Sorry, the three hands. So you're, you're the one way to do it. I mean, it sounds almost like kind of moving into this, um, how people, we can approach this situation as a conference or workshop, Mr. Now, or like discovering the theory of this situation, situation itself, yes. instead of coming with exactly, a ready-made yeah. template work. And I think it's made quite nice of this, because there seems to be this description you are talking about seems to be very particular, right, and actually quite rigorous. Description. I think you were there in this harmony of the Lato where also President after we made the same comment that actually Laturian description is quite uh, rigid and particular kind of description. It's, uh, and I think most to my understanding of what somebody says is mere description would mean here that people simply Catalog observations. We have eight bottles yeah. in the room. Yeah. That's the description, which is of course not interesting at all. Yeah. Yeah. That's the quote of the critique of doing mere description. Yeah. It's a sort of a subjectification. Well, that's of the thing. People yeah. say mere. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, you say rigorous description. I mean, those are all terminology with rigorous description. What people have to be trained in. And it's like you have to train yourself to unburden lots of and I mean, what you say about being a kind of discovery, that's a very high degree, you know, that this idea that we're uncovering of what's going on. It's getting to the phenomenon itself, what in this case, the phenomenon of engaging in, a, in a, uh, some kind of a seminal seminar. Uh, it's, it, the complexity of that has to be reflected on. And, and so it's a reflective form of description. It's not, you know, some people think of it as just being naive description, but it can't be just naive because we have, well, we have to foreground the things that are in the background. I think that's what a lot of it is. 
foregrounding of things that are in the background. Play of presence matches that you talked about uh, very accurately. And, and, and it sounds weird, but you're doing it all the time. You do it all the time, but you don't systematize your factory. You know, you do it at home when you move the desk around and think about the police and the people online. You know? Yes. Oh, sorry. I think we're discussion so far, uh, we're leaning towards something like experimental mode, this imagining in your explanation at the very beginning, both of it, that in a sense these, that the description is also constantly deconstructed. They're doing, in doing so as an expression plane configuration or description. Is it fundamentally, is this what the bracketing does? Is this the main part of the method, the bracketing? Is it the experiment? I mean, I, I take that to be what Husserl what called the bracketing. The bracketing was the idea of unplugging our commitment that this is what's really going on. In other words, you know, is it really a movie or is it really light flickering on the screen? That question uh, interferes with what our, uh, our ability to understand the phenomenon. You know, if we start worrying about what's real here and what's not real. So the bracketing is primarily the suspension of that commitment towards what's really real. And then the bracketing is also sort of suspending of our, uh, you know, uh, prejudices, you know. Uh, oh, you're really only imagining that, you know, whatever, talk to a doctor. There really is nothing there about that can be causing that pain or whatever. But you know, you still have the pain, so you're, you're you know, the, the, uh, there's something that needs, it's, it's calling, that needs to be called attention to. And so, and so sometimes bragging out the presupposition of the person bringing to bear is crucially important. In fact, building your own presupposition. Uh, so bragging has those functions that are constituted. But the second thing, again, that uh, I didn't mention it, but uh, Lucas did, is this imaginative variation, which is what because we are not committed to what's really the case, we can think of other scenarios. You know, you can kind of just do... Um, now, Husserl was, was actually a mathematician and primarily interested in, in geometry. And, you know, uh, uh, geometrical thinking is a kind of free variating. You know, will that triangle fit into that circle? That kind of, you know, those, those, you do them in your head. You know, you don't have to draw them all out and measure them all. And whether this shape matches onto that shape is congruent with that shape. There are things that are, you know, there are psychological tests for both, you know, how far we can rotate shapes and turn them around, physically set out, back to the level. So, so there are limits of what humans can do. But uh, that imagining otherwise is very helpful. Uh, you know, and we don't, and usually you don't have to, there are usually enough examples in the real world, you know, like you don't, like, a handshake thing. You know, there are different cultures and different ways of doing that, meaning different things in different cultures. And, you know, that, you know, there are embraces and kisses and bear ones and chronic noses. There are lots of different ways, but what you might, but the essence of the phenomenon is the one-to-one -one encounter where each person is acknowledging the other and recognizing the other. So we can quickly shift to a completely abstract discussion of what the supposed handshake <coughs> exemplifies. And that's the move to the essence. 
Excuse me. And uh, and what what are the necessary conditions that must make it possible? You know, uh, uh, for there to be that recognition, which might involve recognizing difference of of brain or level or standards as well about Japan, how low they are on the rank of the person and so on. Uh, men shake hands differently to women. They shake women's hands differently in the way they shake men's hands. So there, there is a whole code for it, you know, secret handshakes and all this. You know, I'm just pre-varying now on the idea of handshakes, but, but that's what a philosopher or a fellow would do in the privacy of their own armchair. They don't need to go out and do a vast amount of empirical research. And in a way, uh, that's the good news. It's cheap. But often, you, what you're trying to get at Muslim thought, you're trying to get to those, what any, if you're a geometer, what any circle must have. You know, pi. It's just an integral part of every circle. So, so geometers discover this amazing feature of every circle that had never possibly been thought of. And yet, and that's an extremely useful thing. It's not just a bad uh, relation. This relation has extraordinary applications. So nobody would have thought that, but if you're a geometry. But uh, so, so just thinking about what makes handshakes possible might lead you to a whole thinking about human engagement, which you know is incredibly rich. Um, well, uh, how phenomenology is related to science of subjectivity? problem of uh, induction. They, uh, in the physical sciences, they usually assume a uniformity of the world and forget about the problem. But if you're talking about subjects, uh, it, it, uh, by necessity, peculiar, uh, and forget about this peculiarity, there are no subjects anymore. So how is phenomenology going to this issue of problem? Well, I, mean, I know there's very technical work done on uh, the logic of induction by philosophers of science, in which several of the early phenomenologists engaged very vigorously. At the time, especially in the 1930s, when sort of logical positivist tradition thought that knowledge, especially empirical knowledge, was gained through induction. I mean, you know, if you remember, Karl Popper reacts to that by pointing out that you, know, you could never gain, just by very endless collection of examples, you'd never get to the general theory where one counterexample was enough to kill the theory. So Popper moved for falsification. And he was reacting against that particular model. What the phenomenologists never went with the original belief that you could go to that induction leads you to the insight. This is where the single example could give you, you know, the reading the novel, seeing the play about you know, jealousy, can give you an insight into jealousy. Uh, you just need, you know, it's, and it isn't just my jealousy and then your one is completely different. We have to think there's something called jealousy, or, you know, it may have many different modalities, but there is something called jealousy. I mean, this is, that's, this sort of cuts across, it's a bit like you say, cutting across the theory of practice and cutting across, it cuts across the universal particular. You know, you, you see, if you like, the universal in the particular. 
And that's, I mean, that's what we do with individuals. That's what we do with, you know, uh, uh, there is only one, you know, um, you know, and Obama. But, you know, that, that, well, that would be a title. Okay, one person who exemplifies the title. I'm more essentialist, I think, than that. Lucas is more Heideggerian than that. I'm more essentialist. There was an essentialist. Essentialism is bad press now. For certain people. But there really is something called war. I know if you get down to it, it's complicated because H2O is never really planned. It's always H3O plus or whatever else. Oh, the H minus and then the dial. It gets much more complicated than limiting. So, but you know, there's a sort of there's a there's some kind of coat hanger upon which the world hangs, and one of the things is war. And and there are and in the human world, there really are there really is you. But I'm, 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 I'm an essentialist about you. But, but I would agree with that. I would agree with that. Would agree with that. But my my account of it would be different. I would say there are there are things that we call warfare. Because there are a number of practices that we engage in when we encounter the stuff. When we encounter the stuff, we tend to drink it, we tend to wash it, and washing it, and so forth. And so there's a stable set of practices. You know, wherever you go, we don't, you know, the way in which people encounter water in Morocco, there might be obviously very many different ways, but there are also many common ways. We tend to use it to wash our bodies, we tend to use it to drink it, and so forth. And if I encounter these practices around these things, you know, I think it's okay to say this is water, and I'm washing my face in water, and I'm drinking water. I don't think that's problematic at all. But what is problematic for me is if you if you take away the if you peel away the practices, and you say water is H2O, da, 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 and these things, well, that's a particular account of water yeah. Yeah, as as a chemical. That's, that's, I think this is again part of the problem that who gets to call what the essence is, it is, it is the chemist as opposed to the person doing something else. But I, I was just going to look for a slide there, but another time, another time. But I, in the, the, the version of this that I developed, I was talking about it to health science people. And I picked the case of whether there really is something called any, you know, this uh, so called yummy disease of tiredness, you know, the systematic. Uh, now, that is a debate. Is it really there or not? Now, is that essentialism? Well, you know, in a way it is, because if it's not diagnosed as a particular syndrome, given a name, given a description, and uh, like a set of identifications, it doesn't exist. It's very frustrating when people do soccer problems. We told them they don't have it, or that there's no such thing. There's definitely a complex there. Whether it deserves a single name, whether it's a name for a group, that's for medicine. I mean, if is not medicine, you can't do the actual job of finding out. Not chemistry. I can't tell you all the different precise layers within the individual, but it, can, it does recognize there must be some. You know, if the cluster hangs together in the right way, you know, it becomes real for medicine. And uh, if it's phenomenologically, if that matches the phenomenological experience, then I think we're on something. If it's way off, then we to go again. So I, I'm not against essentialism, and I think it's actually driving a lot of science. I think that a lot of theorists, again, recently, don't like it. For usually grounds to do things like, they think of it as a social thing, that there's something called the Englishman, or you know, the Irish person, or 
what the video is smoked by. So essentialism is always bad in those regards because they're kind of uh, stereotypes. But you know, the lessons of a stereotype are different. In, in, in my first term, it's a shortcut. Right. If you, essentialism is a shortcut, so you, you substitute these practices for a category, and then you take the category as the the the, the essence, yeah. as sufficient to account for it, and that's the shortcut. So I would say, you know, it's fine if you talk about ME, or I want to know what are the practices that are implicated in taking some diseases as yeah. ME. Yeah, no, I think that's right. I think as a matter of fact, as we know, that I mean, this American psychiatric manual is the sort of governing practice there. Now, whether that ought to be the case is something we have to question. Okay. Um, we, we, we're chewing into lunch, so we don't chew into lunch. Well, if you leave the slide, this is a really long answer or a really short one, I don't know. But it's a sort of tangential um, question, but I'm sure that both of you can answer it, and it might be interesting, given that you've um, identified you've got different phenomenological positions. Um, whenever I listen to, uh, or should I say, the idea of phenomenology has always appealed to me. So this kind of interplay between so-called opposite, particularly the idea that it uh, does conflict with emotions, which is something that's featured in my research has always appealed. And yet when I picked up something like being in time and tried to get into a like Tarsoon hiker. Um, however, I've listened to Lucas speak many times. I also listened to Claudia Dubora speak who was um, uh, a great Heideggerian. And I understand what they're talking about because uh, I think Foucault. And, and, and that you know, I can listen to you talk about, uh, you know, the enforced practice. I can listen to you talking about conditions of possibility, as I would call it, and I can understand. So my question would be, uh, you know, am I missing something fundamental about phenomenology? Is there some kind of relationship between the work of Sluker and the um, uh, great phenomenologists, or, or, or what is there a relationship now? Well, I can say something there. It, it, it's problematic because Foucault himself belonged to a group that were reacting against what they took to be the excessive humanism and subjectivism of phenomenology and the versions that they would come through in class. I mean, a lot of it's local. Foucault was reacting against Sartre and that very existential form of psychology. Phenomenology and emphasized individual freedom in a very strong way. So that was anti-essentialism. I mean, Sartre is hugely anti-essentialism about human There is no you. There's just the set of decisions you're making about who you want to be right now. And that could change tomorrow. And Foucault's anti-freedom, if you like, the free being human subject, is you know this whole idea of the end of humanity, the end of man, at the end of this notion of this construction of humanity as a free agent, and much more to emphasize the, uh, the power structure, the sort of anonymous power structures that are operating within the, within the culture and within the, the overall uh, social world taken as a kind of system. So he, that, that kind of thing is really replicated today in the sort of systems theorists and pathological people who want to emphasize subjectivity. So Foucault thought himself deliberately as attacking 
methodology, at least when he started off. He was embracing that more general meaning of structuralism, which was again trying to point out that the same of language use is not we are what we personally control that governs our language, but the anonymous grammatical of the syntactical structures that are going on beneath. So was wrong, and perhaps was right, but I think that's right to emphasize that, to call that, that, that these anonymous structures uh, that are only like points of but on the other hand, he went, I think, to the Oxford Street, at least the early one, and he came back later on to emphasize, you know, the sense of, of self is huge in the later people. The importance of our sense of ourselves is crucial. It's the same, actually, the same thing exactly happened with Marxism, which again went from being sort of humanist oriented towards sort of the structural thing and the, the resources of capitalism and all the rest of that. Uh, but came back to recognize, well, you know, unless people feel alienated in some sense, or their, their experience is an alienated experience, then there's never going to be any desire to, 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 to recover it or to restructure it. So, you know, I, I would say that <coughs> Foucault, by the way, influenced uh, Dreyfus strongly. Mm -hmm. uh, but he was always a kind of marginal figure on the edge, mostly critical of psychology. But at the same time, his work can be seen as sort of uh, adding a dimension to it. Because, I mean, uh, think about things like consciousness raising in general, or oh, any kind. It's, it's calling attention to some sort of, let's say, power structure that people weren't really paying attention to. Now, uh, you know, Foucault, just as well as biologists, could point out that the structure of the rule determines the kind of practice that's done in it. He would emphasize the anonymity of that. Whereas the phenomenologist probably thinks, no, that came through another set of practices by architects and has driven by other interests. If you know. and, and Foucault was interested in that, I think. But they're, they're sort of describing things slightly at odd angles, but it's, it's really the same overall experience of the world that the whole interested in describing. I don't see the immensely at war. Yeah, no, not at all. I mean, the problem for me. Yeah. With the sex study code and and phenomenology, okay. uh, I, I don't know actually anymore what the code really said and what phenomenology really said. I know what I think now after saying it, and for me they are very close. And in fact, I mean, the, for me, the what the code really says is the fact that uh, it brings the analysis of power uh, and the importance of power, which uh, is of course not at all in classical accounts. I think it was criticized a lot for the fact that. In fact, this whole phenomenology is a dynamic thing of me, of the self, of the human, the singular human. Uh, I mean, it's got a better than design, but, but mostly it's design. Uh, whereas Foucault, for me, brings in the account of power. But uh, for me, Foucault is, is also a transcendental philosopher, in as much as for him, uh, what is important is the transcendental conditions, the conditions of possibility for something to account you know, as, uh, as uh, discourse, as legitimate, for example, in discourse. How, how is it that we speak in a particular way, that speaking in a particular way is legitimate, but speaking in other ways is not legitimate, and so forth. So, so I see them as very, you know, uh, uh, very akin. I, I as, as indicated, I'm sort of not Rousseauian, so I move more, more to, to, to Heidegger and very influenced by Derrida and Devinas. 
and the idea that uh, what is really important is not you know, what they call the metaphysics of presence. You know, what is present is not as important. I mean, it's important as a starting point, but what is equally important is what is the conditions that are necessary for us to take what is present as present. And this is exactly what Foucault wanted to do. I mean, he wanted to give an account of power that is not just what, you know, the first order power. Power is false, but power as persuasion, power as etc. So he wanted to say what, what makes power as false work is the transcendental conditions, also the things that make it possible for us to exercise force. How is it that we allow the king or the state to kill people? You know, why? Because you know, there's another system of power that is the conditions of possibility for state to give. And it's that which is really different from his account of power. So, you know, so I, I see them as you know, very close, but this is a, maybe a radic reading. I mean, I'm looking at the, the, uh, the history of ideas, so I probably do injustice to these. Uh, probably history. what I'd like is something that you'd recommend that might make me, uh, that might make it easier for me yeah. to latch on to phenomenology, given that the idea of it seems... I would say it's right, because he's the one, given that you're starting from Foucault, he's interested in that. Yeah. Um, I mean, just what, what, what Lucas was saying there, I mean, in Foucault's analysis of things like the institutions of uh, um, madness, you know, the institutionalization of madness, you know, um, What's really interesting, and it is, it is a really interesting historical account of why it is we deem certain kinds of behavior to be irrational and then to be illnesses or to be hedonist or to be you know, a criminal or whatever. And why we can't put. Um, he's always interested in the sort of processes, and, and yet there is a sort of phenomenological side to it. He plays that down. But, you know, the experience of um, the irrational from the inside is a really important part of that story. Code doesn't tell, so I see them as sort of complementary rather than mutually exclusive. Can I suggest we finish up and then some of these issues that we discussed? This talk was recorded in person with a live audience on Thursday, June the 5th, 2008 in the UCD Lachlan Quinn Undergraduate School of Business, Belfield, Dublin, Ireland. The Triangular Quadrangular Conference is an occasional symposium hosted jointly by Lancaster University, University of Cambridge, the London School of Economics and University College Dublin. The conference was supported by the UCD School of Business Doctoral Studies Program and hosted by the UCD Centre for Innovation, Technology and Organisation. A note on the quality of this recording. The audio was recorded way back when on an Olympus WS300M. The original MP3 file was of poor quality due to a noisy environment, proximity and range effects. This published version has had the following post-processing applied noise reduction, high and low filter effect, high pass filter, EQ and spectral editing. A vocal isolation track and an AI-generated studio-style track were overlaid with the original to restore clarity on low signal-to-noise passages. I hope you liked it. It took a lot of work to make it sound okay. In fact, it's still probably not great listening, but 
it's the only recording we have, so we hope uh, you enjoy it for what it is, the words and ideas from these two great scholars. Thank you for listening. Please follow and share if you liked this episode. The musical elements are from the Adagio in G minor, released under a CC BY 3.0 license. See the show notes or description for details.